Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. In fact, you could say that music is my radar. Hey everyone, welcome back to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. We are continuing the journey of my number one songs, and we have reached the momentous year of 2000. Cue the clips. The distant future, the year 2000. That's right, a new millennium. Full of promise, full of new opportunities. I'm quite looking forward to talking to some of the songs I placed at number one this year. After 1999 had a few regrettable moments or stuff that just didn't age super well. I think the stuff in 2000 was more defining in what I would come to listen to and stuff that still holds up pretty well today. As with last time, there are a lot of solo Beatles. A lot of Paul, a lot of George, and for the first time, quite a bit of John. On the other end of the spectrum, I got a number one coming up in June that has to be at least in the top two of worst songs I've ever placed at number one. But we will get to that, don't worry. I like to think that I've stayed honest throughout this podcast. Not gonna hide or make any excuses for what I like or what I liked. I like to think that I've gotten past the point where I need to prove how cool I am, which, uh, spoiler alert, not really. But hey, I'd rather be a sincere dork than an insincere cool dude. It's gotten me to where I am today. <laughs> Anywho, let's get started. Kicking off the year, starting at number one on January 1st, 2000, and continuing for the next three weeks, we got a banger, a hell of a track. It's my man Beck with Sex Laws. remember day 12 of that 30-day song challenge, in which I added myself as a pretty big Beck fanboy. So if you want to hear more about me and my personal history with Beck, (laughs) makes it sound like we know each other, 
Anyway, that could be found on day 12 of the 30-day song challenge back in April. So go ahead and listen to that. It'll give you some good insight. So back to sex laws. This came from his 1999 release, Midnight Vultures. It came out in November of that year, just in time for all the crazy Y2K parties. Yep, this was his party album. In a career with many detours and left turns, this was one of them. The year prior, he released Mutations, more of a contemplative folk effort. This one was a lot less serious. This song kicks off the album, and in grand fashion. I can't get enough of that horn lick. It can repeat as many times as it wants. It took me a while to find out what it kind of reminded me of, and I think I got it. It's The Horse by Cliff Nobles Jr. Plus, it marks the return of his crazy nonsensical lyrics that were mostly absent from mutations but all over Odelay. Beef encounters in Mercedes Benz, wearing hepatitis contact lens, bed and breakfast getaway weekends with Sports Illustrated moms. Oh yeah, that's Beck alright. Another thing introduced that would show up a lot throughout this album is his Prince-inspired falsetto, especially at the end of I'm a full-grown man, not afraid to cry, right where I cut out the clip, and that hilarious breakdown right before the last repetition of the chorus. Starts off with a little bluegrass banjo, then a slide guitar riff. Eastern country, meet western country, shake hands. It shows that even in a silly throwaway party album, Beck is still willing to throw in some wrinkles. Oh, if I were a little bit older in 1999, I totally would have thrown this on at a Y2K party. Heck, it makes me think of that Y2K quote-unquote party I was at. Basically just some friend's church thing in their gymnasium. Woo! It's solidly in my top five, probably number four or five favorite Beck songs of all time. However, it's certainly the most exciting Beck song of the five. Totally gets me pumping every time I hear it. Unfortunately, because of the horn part, that ensures that this song would not be a concert staple. Heck, pretty much none of the songs on Midnight Vultures became concert regulars. Except for Deborah. Oh, Deborah has had a longer life than I thought it would even before Baby Driver. But before I tick off any Beck fans by saying how I don't think that song is as great as everyone thinks it is, let's just move on. Knocking that off after a three-week run was George Harrison and a one-week run at number one with You.
Who boy, where do I begin with this one? You know there's some songs or some movies out there that have every single reason why they shouldn't work, yet they still do, you still love them. This song is a big time example of that. This song had a pretty long gestation period. It was demoed during the All Things Must Pass section, and the basic track, most of it, was laid down the year afterwards as George Harrison was planning on collaborating and writing some songs for Ronnie Spector for a solo album as she was on Apple Records at the time. But that never really came to fruition. I think Phil Spector ruins everything, as he always does. He was married to Ronnie at the time, and by 1975, George Harrison's solo career was in kind of in shambles. He had an album called Dark Horse the year before that got pretty crappy reviews, and he went on tour for that one for the first time as a solo artist, and that got even worse reviews. So at the time, I think George wanted a hit single, or maybe his label wanted a hit single. So they dusted up the mothballs from this basic track, added a few overdubs like saxophone, a second drum track, David Foster playing that ambiance synth in the background. Not to mention, George recorded a new vocal track for that one. And I have no idea if he sped up his voice or something, because the song itself isn't sped up. I listened to the demo, and it's in the same key and all. So I really don't know, but it sounds like he injected some helium before recording, because his voice sounds pretty weird. And what of that song itself? Well, as you could tell by that snippet, it takes him one minute to say, I love you, and you love me. Give him all the songwriting awards, right? <laughs> Although there is a pretty nice bridge that breaks things up a little bit that I didn't play. The production itself, I think Phil Spector produced the 1971 basic track, but he wasn't around for the 1975 overdubs. So if it was sitting on the shelf that long, that's probably why it sounds both a little murky and Spector-ish. And then later on in the song, you actually hear snippets of Ronnie Spector's guide vocal that she had recorded before the project turned sour. And that threw me off for so many years because he comes out of one chorus saying, You! Even more pinched than usual, and I would laugh my ass off every time, but I suppose that's Ronnie Spector on that one. And that's totally her at the end, doing her whoa, whoa, woes. That's trademark for her. Throw in that saxophone part that is littered all throughout the song, and you have a prime candidate for worst song ever evolving a Beatle. But man, I love it. Sometimes things can be so wrong that they're right, and that's the case with you. The single itself did hit the top 20 in America, right around the same time as Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen, but I'm pretty sure we know which song endured more in the popular conscience. Oh well. One more note before I move on. The album this was from, Extra Texture, sounds nothing like this one. It's just a really depressing, dour album. It's probably my least favorite of his solo albums, and his personal life was at his lowest at the time. Luckily, the year after that, he got a new record label, had a new album where he sounded just refreshed, and I think he met his second wife around that time too. So there was a happy ending there. Closing out January with a two-week run at number one, 
Here are the electric prunes with I had too much to dream last night. guesses as to which decade this came out. Yep, the 60s. This is the first appearance of a Nugget. I hadn't yet got the Nuggets box set, but I knew a lot of the songs on there beforehand. Nuggets were a collection of the 60s garage rock and or psychedelic and or both songs, usually by one-hit wonders or no-hit wonders. This particular one actually was a successful hit, made number 11 in America. But more importantly to me, it was the first track on the entire Nuggets compilation, and the sequencing is just perfect. I couldn't name a better song to place at the top of the album. As with a lot of these Nuggets, the production is a little bit murky. It captures those backwards guitar and that weird helicopter riff, and the lyrics where a guy thinks he sees his lover either in a drug haze, or maybe lack of sleep or a half-sleep state. And all of a sudden, she's gone, gone, gone. Yeah, I always found that part a little clumsy. The song itself might not hold up quite as well as the other ones on here. It definitely has its charms and deserves to be where it is in its status. And there are a few interesting tidbits about this song. It was actually written at first as a slow ballad by two outside writers. Actually, both women, which... It was pretty cool for the 60s, still male-dominated at the time. And they wrote a song or two that's also on the Nuggets compilation. So I thought that trivia was pretty neat. As for the Electric Prunes, they did have a follow-up, Get Me to the World on Time. That's not as good as Too Much to Dream. And they had a couple more albums. One of them, Mass in F Minor, where they took the Latin Mass and recorded it in a psychedelic manner. That would be, you know, Kyrie Eleison, Sanctus, Agnus Dei. Somehow I haven't gotten around to that album yet. Not sure when I will. I haven't heard great things about it. It even sounds a little bit iffy, just the description. But hey, give them points for something unique, I guess. Coming back at number one are the Rolling Stones, who had a one-week run with Street Fighting Man.
after 19th Nervous Breakdown hit number one in April of 99, the Stones had two Close But No Cigar entries. A number two hit back in August was Mother's Little Helper. And then in November, number two for a week was Have You Seen Your Mother, Baby, Standing in the Shadow, which I didn't mention in my honorable mentions because it's kind of not much of a song. Mostly more noise. and It's okay, but... Street Fighting Man comes a couple years after those songs, and the Stones were quite a different band by then. They'd spent most of 67 doing the psychedelic Britpop thing. I actually like one of those albums, Between the Buttons, I'll talk about it a little bit later. But their Satanic Majesty's request was a little bit weak, and by 68 they were ready to just start over and get back to their roots a little bit harder than before. This came from Beggar's Banquet, the first of their Imperial period albums. It's really good, I I like it a lot. It probably pales in comparison to Sticky Fingers and especially Let It Bleed. I'll talk about those later too. Street Fighting Man to me is the standout on that album. Yeah, I like it better than Sympathy for the Devil, which I find a tad overrated. It's still really good, but anyways, on to Street Fighting Man. This was one of those songs that was just captures the mood of 1968. They had recorded this in the middle of the year before the unrest started to really take place. At the time when they recorded, they were inspired by the student uprisings in France, as well as the war in Vietnam that America was taking part of, but not England. In doing a little research about this song, it confirmed what I had suspected, that you could interpret this song in many different ways. It didn't quite strike me as a call-to-arms type song. You can almost interpret it as them being outside observers saying, well, this is happening, the time must be right for fighting in the streets. One of my favorite parts of the song where they take the Martha Reeves and the Vandella song Dancing in the Street and subvert it a little bit. It's not summertime and the time is right for dancing in the streets. It's right for fighting in the streets. And of course, the famous line, what can a poor boy do except to sing for a rock and roll band? How the song is presented also lends credence to my belief that they're more indifferent or observant of what was going on. Mick's voice isn't super loud, it's kind of buried in the mix. And as is typical, you can't always make out what he's saying. And one of the most talked about musical parts of the song is that there are no electric instruments except for the bass. It's all acoustic guitars. That to me is so cool that they can conjure up a rhythm track that's powerful in its own way without an electric guitar or an electric guitar riff. Closest is you have a little guitar thing at the start. Jing, 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 jing. It's really cool. Yeah, I would slot this song in my top five Rolling Stones songs of all time. Aside from my number one pick, I haven't given a lot of thought of what order they'd be in, but Street Fighting Man holds up today for sure. After that, Paul McCartney replaces them at number one for two weeks the rest of February. Take it away! No, really, that's the title. Take it away.
Now, in the last episode, I talked about how the early 80s weren't the best time for Paul McCartney. This right here would be the exception. This is from 1982's Tug of War album. Despite what I think about the main single, Ebony and Ivory, Tug of War is a really solid Paul McCartney album. Probably his best one of the 80s. And got him out of that funk after Wings broke up and he had that drug bust in Japan. Take It Away was the second single off the album, and were it up to me, it would be the bigger hit single from the album, but it ain't up to me. Not sure I can do a huge analysis on this one. The concept is quite simple. Could be about some struggling band looking for their break, playing at all these clubs and places, and some important guy happens to be there and likes what he hears and signs them, and they get famous. Key line of the song, you never know who. Maybe listening to ya. I'm guessing it's not quite autobiographical to the Beatles days. I wonder if the important impresario would be Brian Epstein, if you want to make that comparison. But as with some Paul McCartney songs, the lyrics are not super important. At least they're not gibberish. The music is where it's at here. It's really uplifting. A damn good pop song. Starts off nice and slow, a little bass line from Paul McCartney, sings the chorus by himself at first, then the instruments kick in, the piano line introduces them, and it goes from there. The verses that tell the story are also pretty cool, just great chord progressions, and goes back to the chorus, and it seems like each time they go back, there's more going on, more instrumentations maybe showing off their rise to fame. Then after the bridge, that line I already mentioned, you never know who may be listening to ya, goes into a third verse about flowers in the back room. And then it doesn't go back to the chorus, it just vamps on that chord progression for the rest of the song, giving it just this wonderful, unresolved feel like a question mark, also highlighted by really cool harmonies that, and they also got these tight, wordless harmonies going throughout that vamping. I just listened to a podcast that talked about this album called I've Got a Beatles Podcast, which I would recommend subscribing to. When they talked about the harmonies in this song, they likened it back to the ones that are all over 10cc's I'm Not In Love. I did not make that connection for years. It totally makes sense though because a guy who was working with Paul on this album was one of its members, Eric Stewart. I love picking up those connections having listened to a song years and years, but finding new ways to enjoy them and tie them in with other songs I like. Yeah, this song is always a mood pleaser for me. I could be in a crappy mood and just even talking about this song can brighten my day. So yeah, this holds up for sure. Coming into March, we have a new number one for two weeks, a song that I love tremendously by the late, great David Bowie, Here's Young Americans. Young 
Wonderful. Simply wonderful. Like several number ones I've talked about already, I had not yet gotten into their discography. This was from Changes Bowie. I think I've checked out the library or something. As I'm sure you know, David Bowie was a big-time chameleon throughout his music career. And this dated from 1975's Young Americans, where he had ditched the glam rock persona of his last couple albums and went into what he called Plastic Soul inspired by the American scene. And in fact, his band on this album was almost all American. Even though the album itself is not actually that great, this song was the lead-off of the album and the first single, and it's head and shoulders better than most of the rest of the album. A lot more energetic, and in my estimation, actually a lot better than the number one hit single, Fame, from this album. I always found that one a tad overrated more of just of a groove than anything else. But then again, my David Bowie fandom is a little unpredictable. For one, I wouldn't put Space Oddity in my top 10 favorite David Bowie songs. Give me Rocket Man any day. But I do consider Young Americans my second favorite David Bowie song of all time. And actually, of my top five favorites, four of them are going to be number ones. And one of them I'm going to discuss a little bit later that just missed number one kept off by this song. So yes, I got some splaining to do, but I'll get to it in due time. Back to Young Americans. The lyric and subject matter are kind of cynical. Basically, it's his outside observation of an American life for a young couple and just the stuff they have to go through. In my research, it says he talks about McCarthyism and the Rosa Parks incident. I couldn't really glean those from the lyrics. They're pretty oblique as David Bowie's want to do. But a neat little fact. One of the lines towards the end of the song, Do You Remember Your President Nixon? The song was recorded a couple days after Nixon resigned the presidency, so it was all the more topical. I just thought, oh, mid-70s, 75, a country is still trying to deal with that embarrassing part of its history. But never mind the lyrics. I haven't paid that much attention to them just the soulful groove of this song is addictive, and it stays all throughout the song with piano and congas, and the second number one in this stretch with a prominent saxophone, but I think it fits better here than in you. And my favorite part on the chorus, there's a background gospel singer singing All Right, You Want the Young Americans. That was arranged by one Luther Vandross, who is also part of that chorus. Then the second half of the song undergoes a key change, and Bowie really goes nuts, spitting out all the lyrics in a row. It's taking over the top two times for me. First time when the gospel chorus comes in with, I heard the news today, oh boy, quoted from A Day in the Life. And the second one was the breakdown that I'm not even going to try and recreate. I'll just provide a sample. I 
I actually remember a drunken night with a former girlfriend's parents. They were playing Changes Bowie or whatever compilation. They got to this song and I tried to sing along in a drunken haze. I obviously didn't know half the lyrics, but this was the one that got down on my knees and really hammed it up. One of my favorite Bowie moments. Again, I know I'm in the minority saying I vastly prefer this to fame. And obviously it was eclipsed by Fame, which was the second single and hit number one. But this song didn't do too shabby on the charts itself. It was top 30 hit for David Bowie, who at the time really didn't have a whole lot of success in America. That's a pretty good consolation prize in my opinion. I'm totally happy with that. We got two more songs that reached number one in March 2000, each for one week. First up is The Beach Boys with Darlin'. Here's another callback to my 30-day song challenge. On the bonus episode, I talked a little bit about the Beach Boys and their six-year period in between the failed Smile Project and when they just said, to hell with it, we're a nostalgia act, we're going to record like that. Darlin comes in in late 1967 from the Wild Honey album. That was after the Smile thing in the Smiley Smile Slapdash which included the single version Heroes of Villains that I mentioned last episode. At this point, I'd just gotten a hold of Beach Boys Greatest Hits Volume 2, with quite a few stuff from that period. I hadn't yet gotten into the albums, but Darlin' stuck out to me from the start. It was based on a song that Brian Wilson wrote about three years earlier for uh, teenager Sharon Marie. It was called Thinking About You, Baby. And the verse melody from both of those are pretty similar. Just the chorus, Darlin' is new for this release. You can tell that it's worlds away from the stuff they were recording earlier, both the elaborate pet sound stuff and the surf rock material. Like much of Wild Honey, it's closer to R&B and soul, especially in Carl Wilson's wonderful wailing vocals and the piano played by Brian Wilson himself. I think it's something in the vocals and the horns that kind of remind me of an early Chicago tune. I could totally hear Peter Cetera wailing this out, maybe with a busier horn section, especially in the verse melody. It just sounds like the 70s, even though it came out in 67. It's not what I would call an upper-tier favorite of mine from the Beach Boys, but it's a really cool song and a cool album. Give it a spin. I think you'll like it. That was knocked off number one by... Another classic rock group, The Doors. Here's Love Her Madly.
This song comes from their 1971 album, L.A. Woman, the last of theirs to feature Jim Morrison before he died. It was written by Robbie Krieger, the guitarist, who wrote more of their poppy songs as well as this one, like Touch Me, Love Me Two Times, and Hey, Light My Fire. Similar to Darlin', it's not a song that warrants a huge analysis on my part. Just a cool little pop song. I'm guessing they're just in the mood to throw something poppy out. In the grand Doors tradition, it's still in the minor key, so even if the lyrics sound happy or hopeful, don't you love her madly, don't you love her ways, tell me what you say, the minor key keeps it from being a little too hokey. Besides that, it's got a really cool bridge where it changes keys, goes all your love, all your love, over this really cool jangling guitar lick that I'm not sure the Doors have elsewhere in their catalog, almost more like the Birds. And then the other guys get a chance to solo. Ray Manzarek does one of his trademark organ solos, and even Robbie Krieger chimes in at the end with a guitar solo that mimics the verse melody, but somehow it sounds even more melancholy than before. I think they have slightly different chords in the middle. I hadn't yet really explored the Doors catalog. This was from a Greatest Hits 2 CD set that I think my brother had with him at the moment. And a hit it was. It made number 11 on the pop charts. It was their second to last top 40 hit. Riders on the Storm hit number 14 a couple months after that, by which time it was posthumous. Jim Morrison had already drowned. Is this song as good as Light My Fire or The Big Two off... L.A. Woman, the title tracker, Riders on the Storm. I'd say no, but I still like it. find it a little bit underrated because I don't think it gets much play anymore on rock radio stations. So it's a good chance to get reacquainted with this song if you haven't for a while. With that, on to honorable mentions. Songs that didn't hit number one but were worth mentioning. Throughout these first three months, there are a lot of songs by George Harrison, Paul McCartney, David Bowie, The Beach Boys all from those compilation albums and Tug of War. Young Americans run at number one, kept out two David Bowie songs, both worthy of number ones if they're in my rotation different weeks. First week was Golden Years. That was the only song in my top five David Bowie songs that didn't hit number one, and it's just so cool. It's another case of a simple pop song, but Bowie-fied for sure. So many cool chord changes. And that killer snap, snap, clap, clap hook that I don't see mentioned anywhere else. Am I the only one who loves that to death? I don't know. That particular one came from Station to Station, his transitional album from The Plastic Soul to his Berlin early electronic era. I'll talk about Station to Station a little bit more, but it might be my favorite David Bowie album, or one of those, transitory as it is. And then the second week that Young Americans was number one, sitting right behind it was Suffragette City, the centerpiece of Bowie's Ziggy Stardust album. By centerpiece, I mean that's my favorite song on the album. A really cool driving glam rocker. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. That's what I'm going to go out on this song. Another song worth a mention was one that hit number two, six weeks apart from each time. The first time runner-up behind Sex Laws during its first run at number one. That would have been January 1st. And then a neck-and-neck photo finish for number one on February 12th. 
or that just lost to Street Fighting Man, and I think I made the right choice there. But Trouble is Awesome. That was from 1981's Law and Order, which was Lindsey Buckingham's first solo album in between Fleetwood Mac projects. I believe aside from drums, he plays every instrument on that song. I'm not going to provide a sample, but I would recommend checking out that video on YouTube. It's a quintessential early 80s music video where they don't quite know what they're doing, but it's kind of funny. And that'll about wrap up the first quarter of 2000 and the number ones. This was a lot of fun to record, and I hope you had as much fun listening to it as I did recording it. As always, thank you so much for listening to Music Is My Radar, and I'll see you next time. Music Is My Radar is a podcast centered around music commentary and reviews. As such, all of the rights of the music samples provided in each episode remain property of their respective copyright holders.